was sweet. Would you bow with me, family? I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. I know you do this every week, but especially this morning. We ask the Holy Spirit to open up your mind and your heart so you can hear His Word. Not so much my Word, but His Word as it's read to you this morning. What a gift your written word is, Lord. We thank you for it. I, I praise you to allow me to look at it, study it, mull it over with you, and write down some words and share it with my family. But we thank you and praise you that when we read it, you start working on us through your Holy Spirit. You correct us and rebuke us and instruct us in the ways of righteousness. We pray that you open up our hearts and minds today so we can hear you and then give you all the praise and glory. Thank you, Jesus, for grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. Okay, so it was early evening, April 14th, when the USS Titanic first started getting uh, warning messages that there was a dangerous ice field up ahead. They didn't hear the warnings because they were too busy sending out messages from the passengers to home. And most of the messages had pretty much the same theme. We're having a blast. You wouldn't believe this luxury liner. Everything's really going good. And my point is, the warnings were all put on the back burner because everything else was good. Everything seemed good. Later on that evening, they actually got a, a message from another vessel warning them of, an, a, of a coming uh, ice mess right in front of the ship. Again, they ignored it. In fact, one of the operators on the USS Titanic sent back a message via Morse code that said, shut up, shut up, I'm too busy to hear your message. And as Paul Harvey would say, now you know the rest of the story. I can't tell you how many stories I've read over the years about the USS Titanic. And it, it kind of makes you wonder, what is it about us as people that it causes us to get warning after warning after warning after warning and always ignore them until it's too late? What, what's up with that? Why do we do that? You know, obviously it's been going on for years and years because we've been studying the Old Testament together last month or so, and we've watched Israel do this over and over and over again. God sends them messengers and said, you better straighten up, I'm coming after you. They ignore it. He sends prophets, you better straighten up, I'm coming after you. They ignore it. In fact, they ignore it and ignore it and ignore it until finally God drops the handle on it. I'm going to tell you something. This is, we've been pretty deep here the last couple of weeks, and I know that. A lot deeper than we should be in the summer. We got one more today. I did not want to preach this sermon. I talked to my sister about it Monday. I'm not, I don't have much of a choice. And since we've locked the doors, neither do you. But <laughs> um, last week we saw the northern kingdom of Israel go down because they ignore God's warning over and over and over again. He finally had to spank them. And we saw the southern kingdom in the crosshairs, and we begin to ask the question, how long do you think God's going to put up with their uh, disobedience and before he has to punish them too? And by the way, you, do you guys ever do that with your kids or grandkids? You ever play that after threat game, you know? You do that one more time, and you're really going to get it. Let me ask you something. What do you normally do if they do whatever it is one more time? Normally. Nothing. We warn them again. What are we, wimps? I mean, what's up with that? I mean, we kid Aaron all the time. Here's Aaron's things. He'll tell his kids, you do that one more time and you're in trouble. 
Okay, you're in trouble. Like, what's that mean? You know what I mean? Why do we do that? Why do we give our kids warning after warning when they should whack, get whacked the first time? I'll tell you why. Because deep down in our hearts, man, we don't want to ever punish our kids. Ever. You know what? Neither does God. And I love him for that. So he gives us warnings after warnings after warnings. And, and so despite all these warnings and rejections, well, as we've been reading, uh, God gives them one more chance, and they still didn't listen. Now I'm asking you, how about us? Because we're getting warnings all the time. You know, we're funny people, to really, to figure out. When, when you think about it, um, we're just kind of confusing. The, the whole human race thing is kind of... But I want to tell you, somebody in the New Testament had our number. The Apostle Paul. Turns out he was an amazing psychologist. And, and all this business of the, the id and the ego that Freud came up with in the 20th century, it turns out uh, Paul already had that all figured out. In fact, if you read the first chapter of Romans, I don't know how long it's been since you've been there, Paul gives a 100% accurate uh, uh, diagnosis of the human condition, how we got to where we're at and where we're going from here. And I'm going to warn you, this is language we're not used to hearing. And so as I read these words this morning, especially in the culture we've been living in, there's going to be walls of resistance go up in every one of us. And I said every one of us. But we need to hear this, because once again, we're being warned over and over and over again, and I'm not sure we're paying attention. This is what Paul wrote the church in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what's been known of, of God has been plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made, so that men are without excuse. Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts became darkened, and all they, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, this is what happens because we've lived this way, God gave them over. I'm going to tell you, he uses that phrase three times from now to the end of this chapter. These are devastating, powerful words. He gave them over. Your will be done. He gave us over. Whatever you guys want to do. He gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And listen to this. Worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. It's pretty obvious Paul did not mince any words here at all. Right out of the gate, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against godlessness and wickedness. He's had enough. As Tana would say, them's pretty tough words, Kemosabe. And they are. Anybody in here want to know what the wrath of God really means in the original Greek language? Do we have any Greek scholars in here? Let me help you out. Here's what it means. The wrath of God. He's mad. God's angry at the godlessness and the wickedness that we have performed because we've become all about ourselves over the years. He's angry what it's done to the people he created. That's us. He created us to live perfectly forever. He's mad at what it was, it's done to his perfect creation. Animals eating each other, chasing each other around, pollution everywhere. That's not the way it was supposed to be. And God is upset. 
Now, we've got to be careful here because the wrath of God we're talking about, not the wrath of people. Big difference. God's anger is not like people anger. He doesn't have anger management issues. He doesn't lose control. He doesn't blow his, blow his top. But God does get upset, and he is very upset. And notice Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed. It's happening before our eyes. It's not fire from heaven wrath. It's this whole, I'm going to give you over. This is what you want to do. And I'm telling you, man, I think a spanking would be a whole lot easier. Now, I'm going to read the rest of this chapter to you, and this is the part I didn't want to preach. This is language we're not used to hearing these days. If you've got a problem with this, I'm begging you to take it up with God. I'm, I'm asking you to open your hearts. I'm the messenger here. This is what happens to us when we choose to worship ourselves instead of God. Self-deification turns into self-indulgence. That's the way it happens. Verse 26, because of, because of this, God gave them over. That's the second time. Gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over. This is the third time. First time he gave us over to sinful desires. Second time to shameful lust. This is the worst of all. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what they ought not to do. They become filled with, is this not us? Every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And listen to this. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. In other words, we're going to get to a place where we not only go against God's law, we're going to cheer people on who do. Because if you don't, politically incorrectness, man, it'll kill you. I'm telling you, spanking would be a whole lot easier. And it's coming too. It's coming too. And I didn't want to preach the sermon because this is not fun. We, we want to preach about the love of God. And we should because that's his essence. But we got to talk about this too, family, because God also hates. He hates what's worthy of hating. He hates sin. God hates lies that hurt people. God hates bullying that demeans people and breaks their spirit. He hates unfairness that victimizes people. He hates gossip and backbiting that destroys communities and families and entire churches. God hates cruelty. He hates envy. He hates arrogance. He hates it when people get all puffed up and full of themselves. Do you know there's 7,500 apps right now on your phone that show you how to take the perfect selfie? Is that something? God hates sexual immorality. He hates racism. He hates what those things do to our body and our souls. He hates it when the poor get neglected. He hates it when an entire nation becomes selfish and just wants to take care of themselves and make no mistake about it, family. The judgment of God is coming against those things. I hate to sound like a hellfire and damnation preacher. I hate this, but it's coming. Paul says that's just the way it is. And you know most of us in here know that? And most of us in here know we got it coming. There's a select few that probably sit around and say, now how in the world could a loving, merciful, faithful God get mad at his people? 
That's called justification. There's something else we've got to be careful about here. We start hearing about the wrath of God coming against people who are wicked, and we start thinking about wicked people. And we start saying, preach it, Jimmy Cain. We need those wicked people, man. They need, to get, they need to get theirs. You know what I'm talking about? See, that lets us off the hook. And here's our master psychologist. He knew we'd do that. So in chapter 2, verse 1, he switches to second person. So we'll think a little bit about this. Romans 2, 1. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on somebody else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Why, Paul? Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Verse 5. You're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. We don't want to do that. Here's what Paul's saying. You be very careful thinking that this sermon is being preached to somebody else. Jimmy Cain, you be very careful thinking you're preaching this sermon to somebody else. Because the condition of the human race is serious and the condition is universal. It's all of us. And there's one word diagnosis description. It's called idolatry. It's the sin behind every sin. And I'm telling you, in my lifetime, I have never seen the enemy throw more possible idols at us than ever before in our life. They're there. Now, we talk about idolatry all the time in church. We have my whole life, and we all know what idolatry is. Idolatry is putting anything in your life or anybody in your life above where God is. It's a cheap substitute for worshiping the one true God, and we all know it. I'm going to ask you very honestly, am I the only one in here who knows that and still goes out week after week and practices it? Am I the only idolater in the church building? Because if I am, I apologize for wasting your time and you're free to go. I just don't think that's the case. And I think we need to talk about this more and more than ever before because, again, this is the most serious uh, accusation to begin be leveled against a kingdom person that they're committing idolatry and it is everywhere that's why Israel was warned over and over and over again that's why we're being warned you know there's 233 references to idols just in the NIV translation obviously these dudes get around and Satan's just throwing them at us Israel got lots of warnings. They didn't listen. You and I are getting warnings constantly. I wonder if we're listening. Anybody remember the first commandment? Would you throw that up on the board? Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's it. Ever. You, you get that commandment, you got the rest of them. In fact, they asked Jesus in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's idolatry, man. It's killing us. It's the sin behind every sin. Anything that you have in your life right now that you're putting above God at any place is idolatry, and he takes us very, very, very seriously. And, and, and the problem we have is the nature of idols because Satan is ramping this up. Do you agree with me on that? Oh, my goodness. The nature idols. Number one, they're sneaky. You know, one of my favorite things to do, and I do it at least twice, maybe three times a week, is to sneak up on Christy Webster and scare her. I get so much joy out of that. Now, I mean, I do. It's a blast. Now, next door in a, the little white bathroom over there, when you shut the door, the light comes on, the fan comes on automatically. So you can't hear anything going on on the outside. And, and Lori White, who likes to 
you know, like she's got a halo. She does not have a halo. She'll come and knock on my door and say, Chrissy's in the bathroom. So I go running down to the bathroom, and everybody comes out to watch, and I just stand right outside the door, and she'll open it. Falls for this. I can't believe it. She'll open up the door, and I'll scream at her, and she goes to the bathroom again, you know, right there on the spot. And then she says things she shouldn't say. That's fun. This is not fun. Idols sneak up on man, and there's so many of them. Listen to me very carefully. I'm, I don't, remember, I'm not preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. One day you've got this thing and it looks fine. It's sports. Your kids are playing sports. It's camping. Your kids are, you're going camping. It's money. I'm working on my retirement. It's, it's, it's your relationship, your wife that you love so much, you just got married. One day it's this, and the next day they become your object of worship. And that's an idol. Sneaky. One day it's here, the next day it's there. And, and secondly, they're blinding us. Paul says once they become an eye, then they blind you. Your hearts get darkened, your mind goes nuts, you get, you get cloudy, you don't know what's going on, you start doing things. Now we got to admit, we're, we're living in a pretty therapeutic culture right now. I mean, we're living in one where, you know, it's kind of dangerous for him to even read Romans chapter 1 because of the, some of the stuff that was in there. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We've got to be so careful these days. We've got to be therapeutic, cautious. John Ortberg was, he was in his second year of grad school and he was working on becoming a counselor instead of a pastor and he was working on what they call non-direct client-centered therapy and the way this works is you don't give any advice you just listen and then you talk, you repeat what they said to you in other words so they know you're listening and so this gal came to see him and of course it's free because it's grad school and she don't want to be there and she's mad she tells him right off the bat I don't want to be here. My husband signed me up for this. He said, I've got to go through this. I'm here. I don't know how long we're going to, I don't know what we're going to do. And John Ortberg said, so what I hear you saying is you don't know what we're going to do today. She said, that's what I just said, you idiot. I don't know what we're going to do today. And he said, so what I hear you say is you don't know what the agenda is today. And she cussed him out. Of course, he didn't repeat that. And he decided to become a pastor that day instead of a counselor. I'm going to tell you something. Paul's not using non-direct, client-centered therapy here. He's being about as direct and as clear as he can get. And what he's telling us is the human heart, including my heart and you heart, is an idol manufacturing machine. John Calvin would later say, the heart is an idol factory, and the enemy is using that against us today in ways like I've never seen before. And it's very good for you and I just to admit that, and to come down here at the altar like we do every Sunday and get honest with the Holy Spirit and ask Him to have, figure out in our lives what our idols are and shut those things down today. Shut them down. We can't live this way, man. You shall put no other gods before me. Now again, the hard thing is, the third thing is, they're hard to identify. So many idols today. So many where's places to worship and lift up to. So many more than one in Christ's day. So much stuff. And, and some of it's good stuff. We talked about this before. Your work works good. Unless it becomes where you get your identity. Unless your self-esteem is locked up in it. Unless you're neglecting your family and your friends and God. And then guess what work is? It's your idol. And speaking of families, man, I love my family. I'm crazy about my family. But if you start worshiping your family, if your kids have got to be at the top, they've got to have the best grades and, and the best scholarships and the best school, and you've got to appear like you've got the best, best marriage and the best home. You start putting your family above God. Guess what your family is? So I've, I've seen it. I've done it. I've done the Christianity thing. 
Christianity's good, but when you start relying on your preaching ability and you're praying, I pray an hour in the morning, if you start relying on that instead of the grace of Jesus Christ, guess what your Christianity has become? An idol. I've done it. It's so confusing. Because you, you start asking, where do I draw the line? What, where's my passion end and, and my worship begin? That's why we've got to come to this altar every week. That's why I'm so thankful the Holy Spirit's in the room. You can ask him. The heart doctor's here. Jesus Christ can help you through this thing. You come up to the altar this morning and you ask him. Now you can ask yourself some questions on the way up. Do I have enough? Ask yourself that question. Do I have enough? You know exactly what I'm talking about. Do I have enough money? Do I have enough stuff? Or am I still going after it? Because see, here's the idol wants your full worship. And he wants you to get more and more and more and more until you wake up one day and you're enslaved to whatever it is. And you all know, as well as I do, stuff and money is at the top of the list. We've got to have more and more and more. Do you have enough or not? Talk to him about it this morning. Second one is, do I have enough power and control? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. You know, we want to be in control of everything. Well, we can't be. The third one is, do I have a relationship in my life right now that if I didn't have it, I'm not sure I could really serve and worship God like I should? You don't think I've wrestled with that one over the years? I had a preacher friend of mine tell me one time he was doing some premarital counseling with a couple, and halfway through their premarital counseling sessions, the guy decided, this isn't what I want to do. And so he broke off the engagement. Several months later, he married somebody else. This gal got a bunch of friends together and they had a prayer session and prayed that God would break up that marriage because she said God had promised him to her. That's a little idol worship going on there, you know what I mean? See, it's a funny thing about idols is they twist things. Paul says your mind begins, it gets cloudy and what you didn't think was evil is really evil and you're doing it and you can't believe you're doing it because it doesn't look so bad to you. You're gifted and you're passionate in that direction. It, it just messes with you. When you start worshiping anything besides God, your heart's become crazy. There's a book out right now called uh, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. It's a fascinating book, and it talks about how what happens to us when we start worshiping ourselves and we get our minds off of God. Our minds get cloudy, our hearts get cloudy, and we start, our memories get bad. We start remembering about voting in an election that we really didn't vote in, or voting for a candidate that we really didn't vote for, or we start remembering about winning this argument when we really didn't even have the argument, you know, or, or this heroic deed that we did when we really didn't do the heroic deed. And this one's the one I'm hearing a lot. We, we, we start remembering that we've been Cubs fans our whole lives because the Cubs are winning. I've been seeing a lot of that lately. But you know what I mean? Your, your mind gets clouded. I went to a funeral of my best friend, uh, one of my best friends from school, Several uh, months ago, or several years ago, his dad died. And when we were there, we all get together, and she knows how it is when we all get together. And one of the uncles was saying, man, I, I remember you and Nice Wonders throughout Roberts and Junior High. You guys were always getting in trouble. He said, do you remember that time you guys were up in the cemetery corning cars as they went by, and you got caught and got drug over to, to my house, and the guys were, and you were all upset and scared. Do you remember that? And I said, I don't remember who you are. You know, I don't know. So that's what happens in our minds when we start to deify ourselves and worship ourselves. Everything just gets twisted just a little bit. And so you can, in your mind, get by with anything. Everything's okay. Everybody can do anything they want to do. You don't want to offend anybody. Your foolish hearts get darkened. And, and then the last thing that happens 
is, uh, or the last question we should ask, is, is there anything in my life right this minute that is above God? And only you can answer that. My career, my kids, my grandkids, my money, what's next in my career, my success, my camping, my sports. I mean, you guys, you know the list. We talk about it all the time. Am I putting any of those things in my life above God? Because if you are, we have been warned and warned and warned and warned, and it's time to stop it. The doctor's in the house. Jesus is here right now. Now, if you weren't here last week, and you probably weren't because the numbers were terrible <laughs> because of the storms, we were reminded from the Scripture last week that there's no middle. We love playing the middle these days. There is no middle. It's a wide gate and a narrow gate. There's no third gate. Wide path and narrow path, no third path. There's a good tree and a bad tree, no, good, no third tree. You're either building your house on the rock or the sand. There's no third. You are either an all-out follower of Jesus Christ who wants to put no other gods before you and is going to do whatever you can through the hope of the Holy Spirit to get that done, or you are not. There's nothing in the middle. And the consequences are dire on both sides of those. One is really good and one is... So what's a person to do? Because we can't do this ourselves. Right here. The broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's our only hope. It's our only hope for salvation. It's our only hope for eternal life. It's our only hope to fix these things that are broken. So man, come up here today and concentrate on his body and his shed blood and tell him, I'm in. I'm all in. Please show me where I'm not and let's fix it today. I think we've been warned.